Well, it's a privilege to open up God's Word with you today. Uh, what I'd like to do is expand upon a sermon that I had a privilege of delivering at a theological school last September in Indonesia. And I'm hoping that the sermon that I brought to their seminary students and their faculty during a chapel service is going to provide a fitting challenge for each of you here today on our side of the world in our local setting. It's the start of a new semester here in Sojourners, and this is a message that I pray will be fitting for you. Um, The title of the message is, Are You a Successful Servant? Are You a Successful Servant? Well, it's not lost on me that among us, especially today, there are master's seminary students, there are students at the master's university, there's families dropping them off, and there's students in many other schools in our vicinity. Uh, But it really doesn't matter if you're a student, although this message uh, could seem to be really geared toward a learner like that. We're not necessarily talking about learning in a formal education environment with what I'm about to bring you. We're just talking about being a student of Scripture, and that applies to everybody that's here, being a student of Scripture. So in other words, the challenge that I want to bring you today is meant for everyone. And the challenge comes in the form of this question, like in the title, are you a successful servant? But there are several important questions that kind of get at that. First, how do you measure success? That was something that I tried to bring in Indonesia, where they have quite a, a well-advanced uh, missionary strategy that's, uh, that is aiming for multiplication in rapid succession. How do you measure success in ministry? How do you measure success as a servant of God? And by that measure, are you a successful servant? Well, if we look at the world around us, we can see how non-believers define success. This is an easy one, especially in terms of leadership. Success is measured by power. It's measured by money. It's measured by the control of people, is it not? That's in the world. And, but, you know, this worldly goal of success is never truly successful, is it? Because corruption brings wicked men into power. Poverty is getting worse everywhere. Injustice is widespread, and wickedness characterizes all sectors of society. I was exposed to some of those power problems just last week driving through Uganda in East Africa and even on the way here to church this morning in Los Angeles. So today, all of us stand before a question that we need to answer about how we measure success, but in a godly sense, in ministry. And as I look out, I see so many of you in this room that are godly ministry leaders, or at least you're active participants in the ministries of this church. We have professors here. We have those who lead through godly instruction. We have teachers of all different types. We have students that are volunteering and learning to teach in discipleship types of groups and Bible studies. And we have a lot of senior saints who come alongside the next generation as mentors, as companions in all kinds of ministry activities. And all of that's happening right in this room with you. So I just have to say, what a wealth of ministry leaders we have right in this room right now. And I praise God for each one of you. But the challenge for the ministry team is to define success in ministry the right way. Is the measure of our success determined by how many seats we fill on a Sunday morning? how well attended our events are, how much exegetical data we dispense in our Bible studies. 
How about how genuinely people seem to respond to what we say to them or what we do for them? Is that the measure of success? Well, all of those measurements, unfortunately, can be very superficial. And they might not give us an accurate picture of the effectiveness of our efforts, but Scripture gives us a better framework for evaluating our service, and we evaluate it in light of the Word of God. So turn with me to Psalm 119. Praise the Lord that the message that the Lord had on my heart today is from the very passage that we were reading uh, this morning in the first service. So by the Holy Spirit's design, I consider it his providence that this, in some ways, might be the part B to the part A that you received for service. Our passage specifically is Psalm 119, verses 79 and 80. Psalm 119, verses 79 and 80. We're turning to the longest chapter of the Bible, but we're only going to look at two short verses. Together, what we'll see from Psalm 119, verses 79 to 80, is that more than any other measurement, ministry success is determined by faithfulness to God. A servant's success is determined by faithfulness to God. So let's read our passage together, verses 79 and 80. May those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. Let me give you a little bit of context for these verses, just so that you can catch the force of what the psalmist is going after in these two verses. Well, first off, we don't know who wrote Psalm 119. There are a lot of great guesses out there. King David, Ezra, Daniel. We just don't know who wrote it. But what we do know is that this was a man that committed himself to living a righteous life in God's presence. Throughout this psalm, we read that he sought spiritual blessings that come specifically tied to obedience to God's word, as we studied this morning already. Well, let's take a brief look at the beginning of Psalm 119, a passage that we've already read, but to help us understand what I would say is the moral character and the heart motivations of this spiritual servant. Go all the way to the top of Psalm 119, just right in verse 1. And you'll see right from the beginning that the psalmist seeks a happiness that can only come from an obedient life of faith. He says, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of Yahweh. Well, the words at the beginning of the verse, how blessed, are a very familiar phrase, especially today, and particularly familiar for the Psalter because it begins the very first psalm right at the top. Psalm 1 begins, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Well, there are many places in the Old Testament, primarily in the Psalms and the Proverbs, that use this term, how blessed. And it's used to describe a profound happiness that belongs to the person who believes in God by faith, conducts his life by faith, and trusts God in order to establish his steps throughout his earthly sojourn. And so the use of the phrase, how blessed reveals that a person who lives by faith follows a righteous path in life. And that righteous path frees him of the kinds of problems that people normally experience when they act according to their sinful desires. And so the connection between walking righteously and being blessed is what is made right here in our Psalm 119, right at the top. So back to our Psalm, Psalm 119 Notice how in verse 1, being blessed actually connects with spiritual priorities in verse 2. 
In verse 2, that blessed believer is a complete person, a person of integrity, because it says he observes Yahweh's testimonies and he seeks Yahweh with all his heart. And because a person like that is immersed in God's word, then he lives out verse 3. He doesn't spend his time devising ways to practice sinful acts. He isn't crafting new methods for living out the desires of the flesh. That would be the opposite of being blessed, wouldn't it? But verse 3 finishes that the blessed believer commits to walking in God's ways. So right at the beginning of Psalm 119, the writer, our psalmist, reveals the kind of moral character and heart motivations that not only he has, but that believers should desire to have so that as they carry out their lives, they walk as people of integrity. They are totally committed to living according to God's word, being found blameless before him. So that's the kind of believer that describes the psalmist, and it's written so that it can describe us too. Now, throughout Psalm 119, the psalmist shows his absolute dependence on the Lord to mold his desires and his actions so that he would lean into Scripture and he would love God in a real tangible way in his life more and more every day. It's the attitudes of his heart toward the Lord and toward his word that are so beautiful to behold throughout this very long chapter. Now, when you get to our stanza, which begins in verse 73 and goes through verse 80, we get a more developed view of the life of this blessing that this blessed psalmist experiences. And it's from a different perspective than we got in the opening verses, which characterize a believer um, in the heart and his motivations most generally. But this stanza, verses 73 to 80, touches on how a blessed person will conduct his life as an example to others. And that's really what is the key here. We see the psalmist in our passage here in this stanza as a servant leader. And his words describe all servant leaders, blessed people who lead others. So the stanza is a prayer, and it has to do with his spiritual life as it affects the spiritual lives of others. It's the prayer of a servant leader who measures his success in ministry with a godly perspective, not one that comes from the, word, uh, the world. So let's take a quick walk through that stanza. Let's, let's look on our way uh, to our passage. Uh, I may have said verse 63, but I meant 73 if I said that. Starting in verse 73, this is where the stanza begins, and you'll see that the, the writer prays to God, give me understanding. He wants to understand the scriptures. He's meditating on them, but he wants to understand them. And if he can understand God's word, then the next prayer is that he would learn God's commandments. That's how it's written there. Now, this desire that you see at the top of the stands in verse 73 connects with the next verse, verse 74. As he learns how to obey God's commands, he wants other believers, as it says, to, to see him and be glad. Be glad why? Because he patiently waits for God to fulfill his word. And then they can be glad when God fulfills his word in his life. Now, he doesn't want all eyes on him for some prideful reason. He's not that kind of a leader. No, his desire is to lead by example. So skip down to verse 78 on our way into our passage. And the picture of this psalmist servant leadership really develops here. Notice the contrast between the audience that he keeps in verse 74 and the audience that's before him in verse 78. Verse 74, you see those who fear the Lord, but then in verse 78, you see the arrogant. 
These are two totally contrasting groups, aren't they? And so these two different groups examine this person who isn't hiding his faith, and and they're looking at how he conducts himself. But in verse 78, the psalmist is confident that when all eyes are on him, his life of integrity in living according to God's commands would hold up in court, so much so that his evil accusers, they would be the ones to be found out as liars. The barefaced lies of the arrogant just won't stick on this guy. His faith, though, isn't hypocritical. His inner life and his outward actions, they don't make a mockery of God. Instead, because of his inner life and his outward actions, they expose the slander of those arrogant liars who always make a mockery of God. He's the total opposite. But in our passage, verses 79 and 80, the psalmist returns to the context of a holy audience. He returns to a holy audience, and he considers what it would be like to stand before fellow believers, not just accusers, and and have a different kind of cross-examination. He actually invites the scrutiny of the saints, and that's actually what concerns him the most about his own life as he's scrutinized, as he's examined by believers. And so he considers his standing among believers, and he, he prays that he would be a worthy example to follow that is servant leadership, and it flows out of the heart. Now, let me read our passage again from verse 79. May those who fear you turn to me, and those who know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, so that I will not be ashamed. Under scrutiny in this man's life is the degree to which his integrity as a man of God is worth following by other faithful believers. You know, is his spiritual walk of such high value that he can actually be an example to others who are already striving to serve the Lord? Is he worth following? Is he a value add to other believers? These are the questions. And in these passages, these verses, we find ourselves challenged, don't we? We need to answer the question about what makes us successful in ministry. Are we worth following by those who strive to follow Christ? Should anyone else follow in our footsteps? Now, there's a simple structure to these two verses, and these provide a lesson for us that will challenge us on a few different levels. And first, in verse 79, you'll notice the structure is the psalmist prays for the opportunity to lead people in ministry who already know the truth. He desires to be that kind of believer who's going to lead other believers deeper in what they already believe. And then he shifts to verse 80 where he prays that he'll be a man of integrity. He desires that first and foremost, he will be that living example that's worth following. Now, recognizing that he has his eyes on those that he might lead, but then he has his eyes on himself that he might be that leader worth following, then those frame two lessons that the Holy Spirit wants us to receive today, and I'm confident of this. It's been challenging me in my own life as I've had to revisit this passage over the course of this year and in preparation for today. There's two main lessons that will challenge us for ministry, and verse 79 is the first lesson that God is calling you to lead his people by example. God is calling you to lead his people by example. And then the second lesson is verse 80. God is calling you to be a godly person. It's kind of a duh type of statement. 
but it's pivotal. And you can't have the first lesson fulfilled without the second, which is God is calling you to be a godly person. Now let's look at that first lesson in verse 79. God is calling you to lead his people by example. The psalmist begins his first point by saying, may those who fear you turn to me. Let's pull out a few observations here from this first line. A first observation is that we should pray like the psalmist for the opportunity to influence people. Pray to be an influence, not a social influencer. (laughs) How about being a Christian influence? You know, a teacher in any field, and I know many in this room, understand that kind of leadership. If you're an instructor who loves the Lord, then hopefully you don't actually consider it your right to teach others. You consider it a privilege. You know, it's your responsibility. You've undertaken it before the Lord to be part of molding lives, molding their minds and their hearts. And that's a position that requires utmost humility. Now, whatever subject area that a teacher might teach, and for those of you who are teachers, then pray like the psalmist that the instruction you give would be a vehicle for helping others connect material facts to the truth of God so that through your guidance, they would actually not just learn things, even good things, but adopt a biblical worldview and turn head knowledge into worship from the heart. And that has its bearing in any discipline of study. Now, for those of you that are studying, for students who are in that seat of learning, well, then for sure, you're surrounded actually by other learners, are you not? Think of a classroom setting. Think of a study group. Think about uh, the interactions that you have in the hallway. There are many people that actually look up to you to learn from your example. Now, you may not think of it that way, but there are many people with many eyes on you as a student. So pray like the psalmist to be the kind of spokesperson that God would be pleased to use, one that would help others within your little world to exalt God more and exalt him more than their material knowledge that they're accruing in their heads. So take the charge to instruct your peers by being an example of diligence and dependence on the Lord while you're being diligent. Have a gracious attitude that others can see. When you're under pressures of all kind, just like your peers, what will you represent to them? How will you be a value add? And for those of you that have already completed many years in a job, whether that's teaching or whether that's been some type of studying type of thing, job, career, whatever it may be, hopefully you haven't retired from being a witness, being a witness to others of God's wisdom and his provision in your life. You know, being a discipler doesn't have an age limit. So I would just ask you, has, has the Lord guided you by his wisdom through your many seasons in many ways? Well, then pray that the psalmist, like the psalmist, that you might have the opportunity to paint a picture of God's perfections to those of the next generation who are actually struggling to live wisely in this corrupt world. You've overcome a lot. Well, there really shouldn't be anybody in this room then that can't live up to the psalmist's call to be a servant leader, somebody worthy of following. So that's the question, is this what we're praying for like he is? Well, the prayer of a servant leader begins with understanding the context of ministry in which you're, you, you reside. It's ministry 
to people from one person to another. And that's why the prayer begins by describing that context and also the mechanism of servant leadership. He says, may those who fear you turn to me. You know, it's helpful actually in this instance that we don't have for this psalm any biographical information about the psalmist here. Yeah, by the way, it's raining and your phone's letting you know that. (laughs) All right, so I'm glad we all know that. That's going to go on for like a minute. So I'm just going to keep going. And I think we're all going to get our eyes back on the psalm. This, this is happening in Grace Church. Oh, this is, yeah, yeah, that's right. If you think it's loud happening in here, imagine the main sanctuary. Yeah, I got it easy, right? Well, maybe, maybe John does because he ignores everything. Like one little kid and I'm like, okay. All right. I was going to say that, you know, it's, it's actually helpful that we don't have any biographical information about the psalmist. Why? Because he represents everybody here. doesn't matter what your season is. doesn't matter what your situation is. Just pray. Pray out of the Lord's kindness that he'll provide for you that voice to speak to an audience that will hear your testimony. You have faith in practice happening in your life, and that's what we want to see the Lord use. So, so pray. That's certainly that first observation. But when we talk about the people and we talk about the context, here's a second observation that we should pray for the opportunity to influence a specific type of person. It is a very specific context in this first line. It's somebody like you who's already walking by faith. And that's to say, pray to become a discipler. Pray to become a discipler. I think this is a a somewhat obvious reality of this context, someone who disciples others. Pray to be that brother or that sister who is further down in the walk of faith, who can show those who come behind that spiritual path that they need to follow. Scripture is clear in so many places that we're called to share the gospel. We're called to preach evangelistically and do that across nations. I've just come back from some of those. And there's many people everywhere that don't believe. You know, Paul in Romans 15, 20, he's resolute about this. He says, I make it my ambition to proclaim the gospel where Christ was not already named so that I wouldn't build on another man's foundation. But the context here is not evangelistic per se. It's the household of faith where evangelism has already turned into discipleship. So the question is, will you be a discipler within the household of the faith? Now look at the language in this line in verse 79. You see that target audience, specifically those who fear God. So what is this fear? Well, in the spiritual sense, this means to stand in awe before God, to honor God with your life. Psalm 22, 23 is a great passage on proper fear. It says, you who fear Yahweh, praise him. Why? Because the heart attitude of fear leads to worship, godly fear. Psalm 33, verse 8 and 18, connects this fear of Yahweh to standing in awe of him. To fear him is to stand in awe of him. 33, 18, connects fear to waiting for his loving kindness Why? Because those who fear God live in the truth of who he is. They eagerly expect him to reveal his faithfulness. That's the fear. That's the awe. It's to see the perfections of God and want more of that. 
So what makes a servant successful and what makes for a successful ministry of such a servant is that we, speaking of us now, who fear the Lord, who stand in awe of him, that we would live the kind of transformed lives like those who also walk by faith, those who fear the Lord, and, and to live in such a way, such transformation, that other God-fearers that already stand in awe, that always eagerly look for him, would then look to us and see that we can help guide them. We can bring them along. And so that's the goal. The goal is that by listening to us and watching the pattern of our lives, fellow God-fearers would get new insights into how to live even more transformatively than they already do. Our very lives then become a value add to the lives of others. But only when that transforming work of the Spirit is alive in us to create a hunger and a thirst that can then reach others and incite in them even more hunger and more thirst. Then we see the Holy Spirit use us to disciple others. Well, this is Philippians 1.27. Paul says, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, your sanctification is designed to beautifully display the gospel of Christ. You yourself can become a means of grace that the Spirit is going to use to progressively sanctify someone else. As, as the gospel continues to root itself in your life, then it is portrayed so beautifully to others, and you then become God's agent for the gospel taking greater root in them. And that's really the psalmist's attitude here. You just see it in the stanza earlier, too, in verse 74. Take a look at verse 74. May those who fear you, same expression here, see me and be glad because I wait for your word. His prayer is that when they look at him and they see his hope in God's promises, that they're given yet one more vantage point outside of themselves to view the glories of Scripture and the perfections of God. And so the psalmist is striving to be that kind of reference point. He really wants that, that they would see in him what they don't necessarily see in the mirror. He, he wants to be a tangible example of light in a dark world, a visible reason to continue rejoicing in the Lord and to continue boasting of the glories of grace. And he can do that for others if the Lord allows him, and that's his prayer in that context. And so that's part of what makes for a successful servant leader, isn't it? To be a person who lives to glorify God and to spur others to glorify God even more. A successful servant leader is a person who lives to glorify God and to spur others to glorify God even more. So, from the first line of verse 79, we already see a great way to pray, don't we? That God would help us to make every effort to continue growing in personal holiness so that we might be a model for other God-fearers to follow. Now, here's the thing. Whether or not you see yourself as a leader, you ought to see yourself as a servant. And you ought to pray the way the psalmist does because God does want to use you in the lives of other people. In fact, a servant wants that, and that is what characterizes servant leadership. Now, there's a third observation just right here from verse 79. Isn't that amazing how much we can pull out 
And, and this helps round out the lesson that God is calling you to lead his people by example. Here's a third observation, and it comes from the second line, actually, of, of verse 79. It says, and those who know your testimonies. Now, here, the psalmist emphasizes that his audience stands in awe of God and honors God precisely because, because what? They read and they follow God's testimonies in Scripture. This is what has made them people who fear the Lord. It isn't just any type of God-fearing person that the psalmist has his eyes on. He doesn't look for the superb or those that, that use spiritual, supernatural-sounding language or seem to flaunt or boast in practices of the faith or so-called practices. He actually wants to be an example to those who already know the testimonies that God has revealed in Scripture. He wants to be an example to the biblically well-versed like people in this room, you know, sure, he'll be a reference point to those who are newer in the faith, and he'll be that kind of person that new believers want to be like when they grow up. That would be a wonderful thing. But discipling at a deeper level means that he needs to excel still more in his own faith so that he could be an example to the most senior believer in the assembly. That's a high calling, isn't it? He believes that his spiritual walk, if he stays walking spiritually, could be a value add to the person that has studied God's word the longest, perhaps longer than him, who's gained their own personal convictions of the truth in in the deepest way, who has feasted on all the remembrances of God for a lifetime of study. And as he looks at his own personal holiness, and his own dedication to Scripture, as he contemplates his acts of service to God, he sets himself to reach the highest target, to contribute to the spiritual growth of the most mature. That's why I said those who know the Lord's testimonies, those who have personally experienced the power of Scripture in their lives. So he wants to not only be counted among such seasoned believers, but he actually wants to lead them. And so he's striving for excellence. How? In his uh, private life, in his personal devotions, as he studies God's word when no one's looking, as he prays to the Lord, as he considers his way and he lays himself bare, he's asking to be a servant leader. Now, can you think of a believer, perhaps a mentor in your life, maybe a seasoned saint here in Sojourners who just drips verses off the tongue every time they speak? Somebody that you just want to be like when you get big? Well, that's the kind of believer that we should all want to be. That kind of a believer who obviously delights in God's testimonies is somebody worth following. You want to turn and follow someone like that because you trust that they're spiritually mature and they're continually maturing. You have that, that expectation. And a believer like that is always going to have some type of spiritual insight ready to pour right into your life. Now, this is not Christian mysticism. We're not looking for uh, some spiritual guru on a mountaintop, some prophet or prophetess, some visionary, some charismatic figure who just drips gold off the tongue so that we lesser people could just catch it and integrate it as some blessing. No. The idea is that a leader is like his people, just a more mature version. 
The leader needs to fear God the way the people that he desires to minister to already do. And he needs to model a maturity in how he fears God. And it's going to be based on a deeper understanding of God's word. So that when others who also fear God look to him, they have an even stronger reference point than they might have when they look in the mirror. They see in this person something that they don't yet see in themselves. And that motivates them to excel still more by studying the testimonies of God, by thinking and speaking biblically. Now, such a state of spiritual maturity is a super high calling, but it is one that we should pray to reach. Now, further down in Psalm 119, you see in verse 99, if you were to look there, Psalmist writes about his achievements. He says, I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Now, this is not to say he just became a spiritual guru on the mountaintop. He hasn't reached a spiritual zenith point, um, but he has tapped into the most superior source of spiritual insight, scripture, biblical knowledge, and that exceeds all other forms of material knowledge. So then you see in verse 100, he says, I perceive more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. So what do you see in this example? You see somebody who's continually learning God's word, gaining new spiritual insights all the time. And if you want to have a positive influence on other believers, then set the example for them. Be somebody who meditates on scripture. Read your Bible. Memorize verses. Ask questions of the text. Seek answers from trusted teachers. Pray to the Lord constantly when you're tempted to sin and also when you're at peace. Bring the Lord into everything that you do. You know, really, this kind of spiritual inquiry to, to draw closer to the Lord, to lean into Scripture in this way, to have this fellowship with God, it's meant to characterize your spiritual life. And if it does, then pray like the psalmist that you would be an even higher example than you currently are to others. The way a servant leader ought to be to those with the ears to hear and eyes that already are seeking for instruction. Be the servant leader to them. Now, the big challenge that comes out of verse 79 is the one that really afflicts all of us. It can be asked in a question form. Are you the kind of Christian that other Christians can look to for guidance? Are you the type of Christian that other Christians can look to for guidance? Well, ask the Lord today, right now, to make you like the psalmist. To cultivate in you so much spiritual inquiry from Scripture, so much desire for fellowship through prayer that you become the godly example that godly people should follow. Because as you seek to glorify God even more, then he will use you to help them glorify God more. And this glorifies God. Now, let's consider a second major lesson here. And this is found in verse 80. And it is that God is calling you to be a godly person. Sounds like we've been teeing that up or at least speaking around that idea. But verse 80 reads it this way. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. Well, here the psalmist prays that he'll be a man of integrity in the inner man. He's really focusing now not so much on those that will come to him, but who he will be when they do. So he desires to be blameless in his heart. He desires to be somebody that, that God approves of. 
and then others approve of. And if he receives God's approval, then he isn't going to be humiliated before God, and he isn't going to be humiliated before others, whether believers or the accusers. Now, of course, only God can see the invisible part of man. So integrity of the heart can only truly be measured by God, who is invisible spirit. But this is the prayer of a leader, and a leader has followers. So in making this prayer, the psalmist prays that he would have such integrity in the inner man that it would be evident then on the outside too. And in that way, then he would serve as a model to follow by everybody who desires to have integrity like he does. His character matters very much. The success of his ministry depends upon his faithfulness to God in those invisible spaces of his heart so that what is only truly visible to God might be, in a way, cast in full view for others to see as it comes out of him. So let's make some observations from the first line in verse 80. First, the top priority in his prayer is that he reorient his heart to God's word. This seems to tack on particularly well with what we've already studied under Pastor John this morning. The Bible teaches that the heart is the control center of a person. It governs the thoughts, the motivations that drive a person to act the way he does. Let me just set up a little bit what we need to know about the heart. Proverbs 4.23 portrays that from the heart flow the springs of life. And listen to Jeremiah 17 verses 9 and 10. Yahweh himself defines the heart as the inner life of a person that conceives actions, and he says it this way, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the inmost being, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Skipping ahead to the New Testament in Matthew 15, verse 19, Jesus describes This way, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witness, slanders. And in Luke 6, 45, Jesus contrasts the heart of the righteous with the heart of the wicked in this way. It says, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from the abundance of his heart. So we praise God that through his son, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit changes our heart. Hebrews 10, bears this out beautifully. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, when the inside is purified, the outside can walk in purity. And that's the psalmist's top priority, that his heart would be reoriented to God's word. And if God would purify his heart, then from it would flow faithful footsteps worthy of following by others. Now, there's a second feature in this line in verse 80. The psalmist wants his heart oriented specifically, not just to supernatural sounding things, not just to a little bit of this practice of faith, a little bit of this mystical idea, some axioms, some principles, some biblical worldview-sounding things. He wants his heart oriented specifically to the statutes that are recorded in Scripture. Now, the use of this term statutes is important. In Hebrew, this refers to prescriptions, refers to laws that God established in the Mosaic Law. 
The statutes guide a person away from trouble and harm toward a lifestyle that will result in security and prosperity. And that's God's divine design for his people. 2 Timothy 3.16 brings this into the Christian framework particularly well. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 highlights the importance of following God's statutes. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, following God's statutes, following his prescriptions and rules is missions critical. If we want to please him and we want to serve him as maturing believers who are equipped to build up the body, then we need to follow what he has written to a T, and of course, by his grace to do so. Christians are called to demonstrate faith in the heart, in the inner man, in that control center of our thoughts and desires, and and be so controlled by God's perfect commands that the actions that flow out of the heart would set that worthy path that other dear saints ought to follow. Now, take a look at a third term in verse 80, and this is another observation that really ties all of this together, and it's the term blameless. What does the psalmist really mean when he prays for a blameless heart? Well, consider that the context of this stanza is servant leadership. He's praying that God will save him from being a hypocrite. He doesn't want to preach one way and live another. He isn't a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do kind of guy. Okay? He fears the Lord so much. He desires to honor God so much that he's not concerned what he looks like. He, de- he doesn't want to just look like someone worth following. He wants to be someone worth following. He can only call people to a life of deepening faith if he himself is without fault in his heart. He needs to be blameless for any of this to work. The psalmist knows he has sin in his life. Of course he does. He's not naturally a blameless person. None of us are. He sins in his thoughts, in his desires, and in his actions. And that's actually why he prays to be blameless. If God will help him be pure in the inner man, then out in action, he'll walk with faithful footsteps. But God has to do that in his life as he aims to to learn how to follow those statutes in God's law. So if God helps him to be blameless in his heart, then he's going to be a leader with integrity. His footsteps will be worth following because there are many other people that are also praying to be blameless and they need to know who to follow in that path. They look ahead. And as they look ahead to you, will they see you as blameless? Will they step where you stepped? Will you lead them in a path of righteousness according to God's design through his word? Will you be that servant leader? Well, there's one final observation at the end of verse 80, and this gives us one more glimpse into the leader's secret to success, if you will. So far, he's acknowledged what a privilege it would be for fellow God-fearers to follow in his footsteps, but the high demand of servant leadership means that in a very real sense, his ability to disciple others depends on him not being ashamed. Ashamed is the term that's used. And it's on this point of not being ashamed in front of others that more often than not, um, means that our flesh battles our spirit on this idea of who we will not be ashamed before. So we need to take care to understand what the psalmist means here when he prays not to be ashamed. 
because it's going to help us in our own battle against sin. You know, we walk on a tightrope between flesh and spirit. In our flesh, we really badly want people to see us as pure. We want people to consider us as holy. And if they do, then we can avoid the embarrassment of being seen as sinners in the assembly of the saints. Nobody in their flesh wants their sin revealed. They don't even so much want people to know that they do sin. And because of this desire to save face, because I don't know what else to call it, and look like people of integrity, then we can find ourselves praying actually in the flesh, can't we? That God would help us not be ashamed in front of other people. But that's a self-serving prayer. God is not pleased to answer a prayer like that. Because people, not God, have become the object of the prayer. That's not what the psalmist prays here. He prays not to be ashamed. And that has to do with what God thinks about him. Not what other people think about him. He doesn't seek purity in his heart only so that other people will believe that he's pure. He doesn't seek holiness according to God's statutes so that other people will treat him like a holy man. Because that's what he wants. No, what's more important to him is that when God looks into his heart, he's not put to shame. Sure, all eyes are on the leader. We get that. But God's eyes are on the leader, and only God's eyes matter. Psalm 33, 13 to 15 says it this way. Yahweh looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth He who forms the heart of them all. He who understands all their works. See, the creator of the heavens and the earth looks into our hearts. The scrutiny of others means very little when God sees everything. The psalmist prayer in our passage is an ultimate prayer. It's as if he's saying it this way. God, you see my heart. So continue to craft it in such a way that I can walk in holiness and not be put to shame in your presence. The result, of course, is he won't be put to shame in the eyes of anyone else. But that's purely secondary. To the psalmist, the pride of people-pleasing just kind of dissolves, doesn't it? It's because the searing heat of God's eyes burns into his heart, and it is there that the measure of true servanthood is examined. Now, the Apostle Paul is a great example here, isn't he? He kept his eyes focused on the one who peered into his heart. And he speaks matter-of-factly in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 2 and 3. He says, It is required of of stewards that one be found faithful. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. If God is his judge, then God is the one who has to deal with him and purify his conscience in the inner man and with respect to his actions. But the psalmist, like Paul, he doesn't look around for confidence that he's serving well by the people that he's ministering to. Do you understand the perspective here? He looks up to God because it's God who has told him how to be faithful in his word. And it's God who promises to reward faithfulness when you're following the commands of God, the statutes. God is his judge We don't need the applause of men. We shouldn't fret over the critique men bring unless it really is calling us out for sin that shows that we're not blameless before the Lord. The the, the point is we just don't want God to be ashamed of us. That should be more important. Isn't that right? 
shame belongs to those who don't follow God's statutes. When Adam and Eve broke God's rules, they, it says they hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God. They knew they were naked, and they were afraid to show themselves to their father. Now, our psalmist is a son of Adam like we are. He's a sinner who desires to have a pure heart like Adam and Eve had before they sinned. And, and that's when Genesis 2 says they were both naked and were not ashamed. The psalmist, like we should want, is to have unbroken fellowship God the way, with God the way they did in the garden before sin, to stand in his presence and not fall away. You know, if he wants fellowship with others in a sanctified way, in tangible purity, he needs to be sanctified. He needs to ask the Lord to make him blameless so that he's not ashamed before God. So a person who seeks to be unashamed before God is so engulfed with the desire to please God that he doesn't spend his life entangled in people-pleasing. That ultimately proves to be hypocritical. Wrong perspective, wrong, wrong objectives, wrong object, wrong worship. And we can be sure that if we please the Lord, then we will have that secondary effect that servant leadership requires that others will be pleased with how we lead them? Why? Because we're going to help them to enjoy what it means to have a pure heart. And what a pure heart brings is the pleasure of God in their lives, the enjoyment of God's presence, unashamed before him. And that's what a servant leader wants for the people that come after him, that kind of purity. But it starts in his heart where the Lord looks. Well, we've come to the end of the passage, and it's clear here, just from what we've seen in these couple of verses, that the success of the Lord's servants isn't measured by the size or the scope of ministry. It isn't measured by activities or events or the amount of people that come under our leadership or sit in the seats that we set out. Those are all measurements that the evil world uses to gauge success, is it not? Instead, what we've seen in our passage, verses 79 and 80, is that a servant of the Lord is successful if he fears the Lord, if he sets his heart to follow the righteous standards of the Bible, even though he sins, but he, he looks to bring others along with him into the purifying presence of God. And so those have been the two lessons that we see. God is calling you to lead his people by example, and God is calling you to be a godly person so that you can lead them. And the big challenge is to pray like the psalmist, no matter what your current life situation, and, and pray in such a way as to embody what the Apostle Paul actually did. In 2 Corinthians 12, 15, he said he, was most glad, he would most gladly spend and be fully spent for the souls of the saints. So how is your inner life affecting your outer life? And how is that leading you in such a way that others might follow? Is it? Well, this week, as I returned from East Africa, I received an email from one of these big church growth movement kinds of organizations. You remember Willow Creek back in the day. Uh, well, they, they failed and other things sprung up in their, their wake. And there's tons of these kinds of organizations. And, um, you know, I follow some of these quick strategy groups because of my dissertation days. I wanted to critique them. And this subject line of this email that came to me was called, How Do You Measure Success? Got that this week. Well, I skeptically 
opened up the email and I read all about moving from a level one church, whatever that is, to a level five church, whatever that is, sounds great, and through a multiplication strategy that involves new branding strategies, insights about how you leverage your financial resources to kind of climb up to that top level. And some of the terms that popped up in the email in almost every paragraph were things like kingdom impact, great, fast growth, recalibration, multiplication. But what I didn't see in the article were scripture references. I didn't see prompts for how to pray. I didn't see terms like faithfulness, obedience, dependence, faith. Maybe the biggest challenge for us from our passage today is to strip out the business model and just get down to business, the business of loving Christ more and leading his people to serve him from the heart. Would you bow your heads with me? Dear Father, remind us that the measure of our success in ministry is the metric of faithfulness to your word and nothing else. Lord, here in Sojourners, as we enter into this new semester, would you develop in us a deeper hunger to learn from your word, to apply your word to our lives, and to call others to be even more faithful to your word along with us? Would you help each one of us, no matter how young or how old, to be the kinds of servants who are worthy of following May our prayer today, Lord, be the psalmist prayer from so long ago. May those who fear you turn to me and those who know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed.